Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, the Atlanta Public School Cheating Scandal, Lessons to be Learned. I want us to preface this show by stating it is not my desire or position to judge any of the alleged accused, those who are teachers or administrators. The purpose of this show is to discuss some of the lessons to be learned as a result of the Atlanta public school cheating scandal and to address it from several premises. So this will be one of a four-part series concerning the show. There were many who had asked on behalf of the African-American Juvenile Justice Project why we were not more vocal as it pertains to the plight of the children in the Atlanta public school system. Let me start by stating that AAJJP is an international organization. We provide programming services, as most of you know, domestically and internationally. And while Atlanta happens to be the base of one of the offices, we're not exclusive to the affairs of the city of Atlanta. Second, it would not be fair to the accused for us to have moved forward with a show of this type. While I'm not a journalist by profession, I do respect the pureness of journalism, and that is that you wait till you attain all of the facts. Too often we have individuals who report on a regular basis without knowing or having access to all of the information. And then we have individuals who listen to us and trust what we say to make decisions based on either personal or unprofessional, I should say, experiences. With that being said, trial has concluded now that there have been indictments, arrests, convictions, and sentencing, and although subject to appeal in many of the instances, I now feel more comfortable both professionally as an attorney and as one who has this particular show to go forward with some of the concerns that I have. And when we return, I will discuss the Atlanta Public School cheating scandal, the lessons to be learned. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry on Live with Sherry, today as we discuss the Atlanta public school cheating scandal, the lessons to be learned. When you think about Atlanta as a term in and of itself, we tend to believe that it is the mecca of blackness that it somehow defines or epitomizes black success, be it the likes of Dr. King and or the family before him and his legacy, Benjamin E. Mays, and a host of other families, the Hope, Franklin, those known and unknown, Maynard Jackson, Andrew Young, Julian Bond, we Shirley Franklin, the native son, if you will, the current mayor, Mr. Kasim Reed, also an attorney by profession and former member of the Georgia General Assembly. When we think of Atlanta, we automatically connect Atlanta to blackness. But the truth of the matter is that the city of Atlanta has as many white residents as they do African Americans. And in fact, with the gentrification over the last few years, there are more white families who are in the Atlanta areas like Buckhead and surrounding communities than there are in the SWATs or different other areas of Atlanta. And it's important to note because Atlanta seemingly, we consider the state of Georgia as 159 counties. When we think of Atlanta on a good day, we'll include places like Johns Creek and Sandy Spring, which are separate incorporated entities of their own and are not part of the municipality of the city of Atlanta. 
So how did the cheating scandal affect Atlanta? When we think of Atlanta as an area of a, or a mecca that defines blackness, greatness, if you will, the Atlanta cheating scandal says to those generations before and those of the future that you failed. Because when you had individuals who were the subject of a cheating scandal, it wasn't predicated on the benefits or the financial benefits that these administrators and school teachers were to receive. What it says to those of us on the outside looking in is that you didn't believe in the children of Atlanta. You didn't believe in the first, second, and third generations of the likes of a Dr. King, a Julian Bond, the Coretta Scotts, the Andrew Youngs. How did we, Atlanteans, if you will, how did they get to that place where it was more important to cheat, to ascertain the grade requirements, the testing requirements, as it were, to sit in a classroom and be prepared and prepare these children for the future. Because, you see, the cheating scandal isn't predicated upon a test. The real test in which they failed was preparing our youth for the future so that when these children were taught the immorality of cheating, we not only adversely affected those who were directly affected by the cheating, the actual students, but those individuals in their communities, the city of Atlanta as an entity, as a municipality, and the future of Georgia and the future of young African-American children all across this country. Because every one of those students will eventually, within the next 10 to 12 years, be required to enter somebody's workforce, somebody's college or university. And those individuals would have been prepared to fail. And in that capacity, every single day we see in the juvenile justice system, as well as in courts in Fulton and DeKalb counties that are directly associated with the Atlanta municipality, children who come through that system who already are mocked. They've been plagued by social promotion. They've been stereotyped as children with disorders, mental disorders, emotional disorders, behavioral disorders children who are victims of a one, two, and three strike your out system. So the system had already designed them for failure. In the very system that we entrusted these children to to succeed, failed them evermore. Because the first rule was they no longer believed that these children were capable of learning. Here's the dilemma. You have access to testing, and you have access to scores, maybe from previous testing. If you yourself as an academic provider have the ability to read, to write, to prepare, why do you need to cheat? Why would you need to erase the answers as opposed to saying, how do we effectuate and meet the professional standards, the performance standards that have been set forth for the state of Georgia for our school systems? How are we as teachers failing students on that wise? And that's part of the problem with a lot of the online learning. Well, when you look at a lot of the teachers in the Atlanta public school system, the majority of them over the last 10 to 12 years have all gone back to these what I call diploma middle colleges that are giving all of them these online degrees where they have master's in this and a bachelor's degrees in that. But yet you don't have the basic requirements, the prerequisites, 
to prepare elementary and middle and high school students to pass a standardized exam? We're not suggesting that you have to prepare these students for something like an SAT. These exams are predicated upon what you're supposed to be teaching the students every day. So the cheating scandal isn't limited to an exam that was administered. It's the fact that you've been failing those students all along. And that's the point that I've been trying to share if I'm having conversations with people. The dialogue isn't about simply erasing a few answers. It's how did you get to that point where you needed to do it? Because the performance exams that these students receive is predicated upon lesson plans that are given to the teachers, part of their performance, from the beginning of the school term until when the tests are administered. So if you're doing that and you're preparing the students every day, then there's no need to erase. This thought that a lot of students are not test-oriented, I get that. You do have a lot of students that don't perform very well on exams, but you don't need to help those students cheat either. You need to deal with some of the weaknesses. Why are they failing? What is their area of weakness? What after-school programs can we add? What can we do over the weekend? How do we connect with church-based communities to offer after-school tutorial programs? The information that you all need are available through test banks from previous exams that were administered. So it's inexcusable, it's unconscionable that you would have a need to erase answers. And here's the biggest dilemma, is that there were so many black teachers saying, well, the white teachers have been doing it all along on the north side of town. So what? Most of their children are the children of the doctors on the north side of town, the dentists and the business owners and the CEOs and executives and administrators and entrepreneurs. So their students aren't going to face the same dilemmas that our students will face. And that's operated in excuses, deny, and justification that if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander? No. Our children already are designed for failure. How does the school system, the Atlanta public school system, that prides itself on black greatness, the mecca of greatness, that you come to Atlanta where everybody fake till they make it. Public pretenders, right? And now you're known across the world as a group of individuals who are felony, felons who gazed in felonious behavior in an effort to do what? Receive an extra few dollars because you didn't want to take the time out to follow a lesson plan and properly prepare your students? And I think part of the bigger dilemma issue is a statement that was made by Governor Nathan Dale that had nothing to do with the Atlanta public school system, but rather the educators for the state of Georgia. And the statement had to do with the qualifications of the educators, which many believe is racially motivated. But here's the reality. If it happens to affect more African-American educators than norm, so what? I would prefer you get rid of all of them regardless of their race, ethnicity, creed, or nationality, or gender or sexual orientation. If at the end of the day, the ultimate goal is you will in place give us individuals who can teach our students. 
I would rather have a white teacher teaching my child. Yes, I said it. I would rather have a white teacher teaching my child who believes in my child, who's going to prepare my child for the future, as opposed to simply saying I have a teacher who's black. I remember Supreme Court Justice Brennan speaking about growing up. If I stand to be corrected, it's in Cartersville, uh, Georgia. And I remember on that PBS special, he talked about how the teachers prepared people like him for the future. That in the 50s and the 60s, they knew their teachers by name. You see, these teachers went to their homes. They were part of the community. They were an intricate part of the lives of the young black kids and families in Georgia at that time. We don't have a lot of those teachers existing any longer. So my position is this. Don't simply give me a teacher who's black and tell me that should be enough. Give me a teacher who's qualified and motivated, who believes in my child, who will spend as many hours preparing my child for the future as anybody else. So when we think of Atlanta, the mecca of greatness and blackness, how do we have more than 100-plus teachers who have been subject to an investigation since 2005. And then a percentage of those individuals who are now convicted felons because they failed our students, because they did not believe in them. They got too comfortable with the salaries of Atlanta public schools, the systemic and institutionalized corruption of the Atlanta public school system, which still plagues the system, both pre- and post-conviction. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, The Atlanta Public School Cheating Scandal. While many of us have followed this particular story on through mainstream media, the emphasis, as most of us know, has been placed on erasing answers to the test, and that many of these administrators and educators who engaged in these acts primarily did it for financial gain. Since I've never had the opportunity to sit and converse with the individuals who were accused and or who pled, I'm not going to suggest or imply that that would be the reason why they did it. But what I can say is that in doing so, they failed not just the students who we now know were adversely affected, but a generation. You see, the investigation started in 2005 when a few whistleblowers were being retaliated against by the Atlanta officials, from the superintendent to regional directors to administrators and principals alike, including but not limited to the HR department. And I professionally see that abuse occurring in the Atlanta public school system even as I speak to you now. It is so systemic that it becomes an institutionalized problem that one would think the mere fact that through their arrogance they thought they can go to trial and attain a victory. Because, again, Atlanta representing blackness and greatness. And the fact of the matter is I fault as many of their lawyers as I do the actual defendants, because as attorneys, I watched and observed some of their attorneys. And I thought to myself, why are you taking this case to trial? You should have pled that case out. I have a 100% acquittal rate. I've never lost a trial, and I plan on never losing one. 
And I think you listening, you need to know what I'm saying. I don't ever plan on losing one, not for myself or anybody else. And the fact of the matter is, as attorneys, we are commissioned, if you will, to properly examine a case. And I operate under this model. I say, tee up, put up, or shut up. To tee up means if you got it, let's go to trial and leave it in the hands of the jury. To put up means if you have evidence that warrants us having a plea negotiation, put up what you got and let's evaluate it. Shut up means you know you don't have anything. It's a meritless case. It's not going to go anywhere. You're going to end up being sued for malicious prosecution anyway. So I'll let you play the game as long as you want to play it, but you're going to get shut up in the end when you either get an acquittal or alternatively when you refuse to do the right thing. And too often what you have, both in the prosecutor's office and by defense attorneys, are individuals who know you don't have a viable claim. But you're going to advance the claim anyway because you think that you can intimidate, humiliate, or harass and or embarrass the person. So what tends to happen is that person calls you by your game, and ultimately they're going to win. In the case with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and then commencing with a RICO action, that should have sent the message to a lot of the attorneys. Sit down with your clients, discuss the alternatives, and do your best to negotiate pleas whenever possible. We are ethically required to negotiate settlements, not just in civil matters, but in criminal matters as well, as we are in any other circumstance. So where you know that the evidence is overwhelming, you don't look to whether or not you're going to be a media whore and reap the benefits of you're always going to be on television. And that's the problem with a lot of attorneys, particularly in the African-American community and particularly that Atlanta circuit, where everybody's vying for media. I've been a victim of that, where there's a lawyer right now who thinks that if she stacked up a whole case against me, somehow she thought that was going to give her media play. It didn't give her anything. It didn't give her anything at all. So you're willing to do these things to your colleagues with hopes of a self-serving agenda because you think you want to be upgraded. Well, that's not a Beyonce, Jay-Z situation. It don't always work that way for everybody. Everybody don't always come out like Jay-Z. Everybody don't reap the benefits of being upgraded. So the fact of the matter remains, when you have a client, you have an ethical responsibility to take the time out to explain to that client, this is the evidence that Paul Howard's office has against you. These are the number of people that are testifying. These are the individuals who already entered a plea, and this is why. Maybe we need to set up a meeting and you need to discuss with these individuals why they chose to enter a plea. Why risk it all prisoned? where the same individuals who were charged with the same offenses entered a plea in their home. Oh, because you were innocent. Really? Our clients know well before we do whether they're guilty or innocent. I deal with clients who lie to me 24-7, 365. That's why I am known as a masterful person who records, who documents, and preserves. And I let you hang yourself all day, every day. I leave the tree there for you with the rope, and I give you the ladder and will remove the ladder when necessary and just let you hang. Because as attorneys, that's what we ought to be able to do. So that just when your client thinks they know more than you do, you're able to flip the script on them and remind them why you went to law school and graduated and why you're a practicing attorney. Because too often we have clients who think they can outflick us because they think they know more. And then we are called upon to bring them back to reality. 
by sitting down and assessing and reassessing, defining and redefining the evidentiary issues that are presented in that case, what the adverse effect is going to be. And to listen to Judge Baxter suggest or imply that these individuals were afforded numerous opportunities not to enter into a forced plea, because I don't believe in that. That's a violation of a client's uh, constitutional rights. I'm not talking about a forced plea. I'm talking about where you know that you know that your client doesn't stand a chance in fire to win. And the evidence is overwhelmingly against them. And their culpability suggests that the right thing to do at that time is not to abuse judicial process or to waste judicial economy, but rather accept a responsibility and the culpability and move forward. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that you're going to be remorseful at the time. But what it does imply is that at the end of the day, it becomes the first step. I have clients who say to me, oh, Miss J, I'm going to let you go ahead and ride this out because I know I'm going home. And I say, sweetheart, when I leave this courtroom, you may not get to go home with me. So let me break everything down to you. Let me tell you what we're looking at, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right down to the percentage of time you'll have to serve, right down to what your probation fees are going to be if you did a plea right down to trying to figure out how we could get DOC to get you in Homer, Arendelle, Smith's prison, you name it. I'm doing it all. Because when I sit down with you, I'm going to present to you your reality. And then I'm going to tell you, sleep on this or pray to whomever you pray to. And I'm wondering whether or not those individuals and the Atlanta Public School cheating scandal were afforded the same opportunity by their attorneys. Who am I to suggest they were not? But who am I not to ask that question? We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, as we discuss in today's episode, the Atlanta Public School Cheating Scandal. This will be one of a four-part series, with today being an overview of laying the foundation of some of the issues that we will be discussing over the course of the next few weeks. I think it's important for us to note that we waited specifically for the jury verdict so that in no shape, form, or fashion would we ever be accused of, how would I say this, suggesting guilt or culpability of those educators or former educators, I shall say. Because, see, here's the reality. Remember when, if any of you had business majors, and if you've taken business classes, as I have, as a graduate of Mercer University, what we tend to do is we always talk about the marketing. And when we talk about marketing, we generally suggest or we say that an individual is likely, if you have one person who calls in and files a complaint, that usually may represent the masses. If you have one individual who calls in and he or she advances a, compl a compliment, that also represents the mass the masses or a greater percentage. And I'm not talking about when you have frivolous complaints. We're not talking about that. We're talking about viable complaints, okay, or viable compliments, not somebody you know who's complimenting you. And so the point that I'm making is although we're able to constantly reiterate 11 educators, 11 educators, the fact of the matter is there are 50,000 students, if I tend to be corrected, within the Atlanta public school system. And so there are hundreds of teachers who have been called upon to be these individuals' educators. And so I would respectfully submit or surmise that although you have 11 who were convicted and you had 32 overall, and it started out with almost 100 people as far as 10 years ago, 
imagine how deep and how rooted the corruption of Atlanta public school really is. I don't even think that these convictions were a tip of the iceberg because it's something they've been so used to doing for so long. When you have a situation like this that developed and your superintendent was involved, when the superintendent was involved, that meant it started at the highest hierarchy of that organization, and it had nothing else to do but come down to the bottom. And unfortunately, because it was systemic and institutionalized, the teachers and the administrators who are trying, therefore, to comply with the demands of a superintendent have suffered. I haven't heard a lot from the city of Atlanta as it pertains to their government agency and actually addressing the issue and what has played. Usually Mayor Kassim Reed is very vocal, but I surmise like most, and particularly since he's an attorney by profession, he too sat idle. The jury do what they were going to do. But I believe he's a native son. He's going to be vocal. He's going to come out. He's going to speak. Because gentlemen like himself, they're the benefactors of a public school system that has now gone wrong. And there are individuals like him who grew up in an Atlanta public school system where individuals embraced their education, the oath that they took to provide this education to students. These were educators who were academically trained. They weren't representatives of what we now call a run-of-a-mill or diploma-mill system that allows you to simply get a master's or a bachelor's degree online to be able to assist you in attaining additional monies or a raise in salary, whether you know what you're doing or not. I read a letter that was written by a kindergarten teacher, and I was floored of the number of typographical errors that she had in that letter. And I thought, you're a kindergarten teacher. You don't know this basic word. You don't know how to read or write. You've got a lot of the educators in the Atlanta public school system that are no smarter than a fifth grader. And it's a discredit, it's a shame and a disgrace to educators, not just in Atlanta, but all those who watch CNN, MSNBC, ABC World News Tonight, all those who read the Huffington Post, the USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Everybody who's followed this case recognized this is bigger than the individuals who were convicted. And it's a selfishness that they had, the very same selfishness that makes one question, what did they learn from this trial? That they actually thought that they were going to win. What would lead them to think that a jury was not going to convict them? The arrogance of being black in Atlanta? The arrogance of representing the Mecca? I remember when Ludacris and them came out with a song years ago, Welcome to Atlanta. And I remember reading an article, both in Creative Lothan and an article, uh, editorial that was written in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, in which there were white families who said, that's not our Atlanta. That's not the Atlanta that we know. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, through this trial, there are many people, black and white alike, who can say, that the Atlanta public school cheating scandal is not the Atlanta that they know. I'm not a native Atlantean, but I've been in Atlanta for so many years. And I can also attest state that what has happened in the course of the last couple of months through the criminal trial involving the former educators of the Atlanta public school system that they do not represent 
the Atlanta that I know. But then guess what? They do. And that's the reality of what we have to deal with. This notion of trying to separate them from the majority, no. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to come to the realization that they do represent the majority. And 50,000 lives are adversely affected today as they were in 2005 and as they were 15 years before then and as they will be going forward because the problem that plagues the Atlanta public school system is systemic and institutionalized, and it has not changed as a result of the verdict that was handed down a few weeks ago, and it's not going to unless there's real demand for change. And that has to come from the communities that are underserved, from Pittsburgh community to the SWATs. That's where it has to come from. The voices of the people of Atlanta have to be heard. You can't rely on this verdict to bring about change. Thank you for joining me on Blog Talk Radio today. This is attorney Sherry Jefferson on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, the Atlanta public school cheating scandal a lesson to be learned, and there are many, and we will be discussing them. Lesson one, the cheating scandal was institutionalized and systemic, and it's not about erasing answers. It's about the cheating our students by failing to teach them the material that is readily made available at the beginning of the school term. Thank you.